Well, as always, it is our privilege to open the Word of God together. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. Today we'll be looking at chapter 3 and discussing, again, the five soli. Sola gratia is the subject for today, grace alone. As we think about who we are as Makakilo Bible Church, we are first of all Christians, but we are also Protestant, meaning we identify with the fundamental and foundational beliefs of the Protestant reformers from the 1500s. We believe that what they did was not to come to Christianity or religion with their own set of beliefs and create their own thoughts, but they went back to the Bible and they taught and preached the basic truths of Scripture, which resulted by God's grace in a massive revival that spread all across Europe and beyond. Well, those beliefs that they derived from the Bible, those beliefs that they landed on uh, can be summed up in five memorable points known as the five soli, S-O-L-A-E, that's the plural of sola, the five alones. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, that's what we're studying today. Then we will look at Solus Christus, or sometimes people say solo Christo, Christ alone, and then finally, soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. It may surprise some of you to know that the Reformers did not believe in God's sovereign saving grace to the exclusion of man's responsibility, including John Calvin. I know it's a lot of what a lot of people say about the Reformers, particularly John Calvin, is that Luther and Calvin and the other Reformers, they don't believe that man chooses God or that man has faith in God. They just stand idly by and wait for God's sovereign grace to save them. But this is demonstrably false. They believed and regularly taught that man should choose God, that man should have faith, that man should repent, that man should pray, that man should evangelize and do missions. Despite what you may have heard, they preached man's responsibility without hesitation. They firmly taught sola fide, that we ought to have faith, and it is by faith that we will be justified. The fruit of the Reformers' teaching in the Reformation was a massive missions movement. In fact, they call it the the modern missions movement. It may surprise you that the leaders of this missions movement were guys like Andrew Fuller and William Carey, Adonai Judson. These these were guys who were avowed to the teaching of John Calvin and Martin Luther and others. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in the sovereign grace of God. But just as we have studied, they also believed in sola fide, that people must have faith Salvation, justification, was the result of a person's faith in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All people are called to choose God. All people are are called to have faith in Christ, to believe, to repent, which will then produce the good works that we should walk in them as a consequence of that salvation. However, these missionaries, with their forefathers, the Reformers, also taught that something that is mostly ignored in today's Christianity, even rejected by many Christians today, they also believed in the doctrine of sola gratia. They believed simply that what Jesus said is true. You did not choose me. I chose you. 
John 15, 16. They believed in what Jesus said in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, the whole picture of salvation from their choice, their faith to sanctification, to the process of living life all the way up to the point of glorification, all of that is predicated on God's sovereign choice of them. They believed in the Word of God, that it tells us the ultimate reason we love Him, we choose Him, the ultimate reason that we come after Him and believe in Him, you love because He first loved you, 1 John 4, 19. They believed in Paul's words to the same effect, and those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified, Romans 8, 30. Yes, there is human choice. Yes, there is human volition. Yes, there is our love and our faith and our choice of Him, our obedience, our prayers, our evangelism. But all these things are predicated on God's grace alone. This is the doctrine of sola gratia. Now, listen for this doctrine as I read our text for today. Ask yourself, what is man's role? Ultimately, who is responsible for this grace in the lives of man? Is it man? Is it man's decisions? Is it man's choices? Or is it God alone? Is it His grace alone? Titus chapter 3, and let me begin in verse 3, just follow 3 through 7 is what I'll read today. Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the Word of God. So what do we contribute to our salvation? Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is a sin that makes it necessary. Any choice we make, any decision to trust in God, to have faith, to repent, any effort we have to, to do this, behind all of it is the supreme, wonderful, amazing grace of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we just need to accept this truth and and love this truth and revel in this truth. We don't have to deny evangelism or, or deny prayer or deny uh, faith or deny repentance or deny that we need to, to share Christ or work hard and work at our salvation. We don't have to deny any of that stuff to believe in sola gratia. Our Protestant ancestor believed both in sola fide and sola gratia. Believing in both, you're going to find, just makes all these things much more beautiful. Someone said to me one time, Pastor, my love for God, in order for it to be genuine, my love for God has to be from my free will apart from God. I said, brother, in order for your love to be genuine, it must be from God, for apart from God, you can do nothing. We are glad the grace of God is what predicates our faith and our love and our choice of Him. So today, let's embrace and rejoice this idea, sola gratia. Our salvation is ultimately an act of God's grace alone. 
All right, just to run through what we've covered so far, here's the outline. If you've been with us, we're Protestant, means we believe in the five soli, which are, number one, sola fide, faith alone. We believe that justification happens through faith alone. We believe in sola scriptura, and today we're looking at sola gratia, by God's grace alone. There's quite a few passages that illustrate this grace, wonderful passages that we could go to, wonderful grace that saves us, but I think this one that we just read is just about the most magnificent and and fullest expression of the grace of God, what He does for us. So I'm going to break this down, this passage down for us piece by piece, but it is indeed attached to our identity as Protestants. It's attached to who we are as a church, as people of the book. This idea, grace alone, it begins in the Bible, obviously, but then you can see it in history as, as people believe the message of, of God's grace in salvation. You can see this expressed in people and churches. You can see this expressed throughout history. You can see this expressed even in specific individuals, even in our own church. So before we jump in to the exposition of this text, what I want to do is just give you a little history, our Protestant story of how we can understand these things and how there was this great revival in the 16th century of this idea of God's grace alone. So let's go back in time. We've been doing this as we've studied this the last few weeks. Let's go back in time to the 16th century, the 1500s. In the Roman Catholic Church then, and actually even today, grace is not seen primarily as a characteristic or virtue of God whereby He acts on our behalf. Rather, it is viewed primarily as a a substance, a, a thing that you have to get in order to get to heaven. The Pope, the cardinals, the bishops, the priests, that is to say, the church then exists to dispense that grace to commoners like you and me. They're the ones that have the ability and the authority to to give people, to bestow upon people this substance, what they would think of as the grace of God that will get them into heaven. And so what does the church offer? Well, first, they want to baptize you, right? After After you're born, they want to baptize you. That's the first and primary way you can be filled with the grace of God. They can give grace and bestow grace upon people is to baptize them. In fact, a, a good way to think of of how the Catholic Church, and this is just sort of a Protestant point of view. I don't think Catholics would think like this entirely, but, but for us as Protestants to understand, I'm going to give you a little illustration. It's almost like uh, our lives or, our, or we are a bucket, and, and grace is like this liquid that, that goes into that bucket. And what we want in order to get to heaven is to have that liquid, that grace inside that bucket. When you are baptized as an infant, that bucket is filled with God's grace. If you were to die right then, you would immediately be ushered into heaven. However, you know and I know, as you grow up, you begin to sin. And as the Catholic Church sees it in this illustration, the Catholic Church would say that grace sort of leaks out. Now, so long as you do not commit a, a mortal sin, what they call have a list of mortal sins, and so long as you don't commit a mortal sin, that will not be entirely drained if you've been baptized You'll still get to heaven, but that grace leaks out. And the more that grace leaks out, the more time you're going to have to spend not paying for the eternal punishment for your sin, because that's 
already covered in the grace and the baptism that you did, but you will pay for the, what they call the temporal punishment for your sin in purgatory. So what do you do? Well, you want to do all these things that to keep that, that bucket full, so to speak, of, of grace. If you are free of sin, if you are so full of good works, again, you can go directly to heaven, but most people don't fit that. And even though Christ paid for the sin and Catholics would teach, if you've been baptized, if you, if you go through that, you'll go to heaven, you still have to pay for the temporal punishment of your sin in purgatory. Well, the church, so they teach, is so kind since it has this substance, grace, that they can dispense upon people, it has provided ways that you can keep that bucket full or keep filling that bucket as your life goes on. The first thing the church provides is, of course, I've already mentioned it, things that deal with the eternal punishment of sin, the the sacraments, the first being baptism. Seven sacraments, baptism, then confession, confirmation, Eucharist, marriage, ordination for those who want to be a priest, and finally extreme unction. These give you the confidence that you will not go to hell, that you will not, you'll have just enough grace to at least make it into heaven. You will not have to ever pay for the eternal punishment of your sin. You'll eventually make it to heaven. But the church also provides a way that you can obtain grace to cover the temporal punishment for your sins in order to reduce your time in purgatory. Works of penance, other good works reduce your time in purgatory. And the church, even today, though it's not very popular in Western Catholicism, Catholic churches still offer what they call indulgences. What is an indulgence? According to the councils and popes, there are people out there like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the mother of Mary, the apostles, aside from Judas. There are people who have been canonized through the century called saints. These people have done so many good works that not only will they go straight to heaven, they've got all this extra credit, all these extra good works. They're called supererogatory works. They've got all these extra good works. And what God does, according to the Catholic Church, is He takes all these supererogatory works and He places them in a bank in heaven called the treasury of merit. Again, it's kind of like extra credit on the test. You don't need it to completely ace the test. You've already made 100%, but this extra credit can, can be applied elsewhere as it is needed. And according to the Catholic Church, this is exactly what happens to all these extra good works. These really, really, really good people do. All these extra good works get put in this bank called the treasury of merit. Now, before I move on, is this in Scripture? Not at all. None of it. This is the tradition of man. This flows from the wicked imaginations posing as religious or godly doctrine. Therefore, Protestants who believe in sola scriptura scriptura will reject all of this. But this is true of the Catholic Church back then and true of the Catholic Church today, even if most Catholics don't even know all about this or understand all of this. The existence of this doctrine is not just tragic in the end, it is deadly i refer you back to last week. You know, back to their false teaching. Grace is a substance that you need to attain, first of all, for eternal life, and grace is also the substance you need to, to shorten your time in purgatory. 
You, you shorten your time in purgatory through penance, through good works, and through indulgences. An indulgence, then, is a written confirmation from the Pope that he has applied to you the good works, the extra good works that are up in the treasury of merit upon you to shorten your time in purgatory. The Pope has the authority to take good works from the treasury of merit, apply them to you and others, and these are called a papal, these are a papal indulgence. When they get this written paper, it's the papal indulgence. The Pope has indulged you. He has been kind to you. He has blessed you by giving you these credits, so to speak, to shorten your time in purgatory. So you receive this grace, and your time in purgatory is reduced. Now, let me tell you something else. The Pope is also so gracious that he will let you apply those indulgences that you receive. He'll let you apply that to other people. He'll even let you apply it to people who have already died and who are in purgatory right now. So you can get an indulgence from the Pope assigned to you. You get this written confirmation, I've received this, and you can take that grace and you can have it applied to a loved one who's already passed away and who's burning or in great torture in purgatory and shorten their time. What's more is that the Pope also offers what is called plenary indulgences. That means complete, entire. In other words, this completely fills up your bucket of grace, and if you are suffering in purgatory and someone applies a plenary indulgence to you, you immediately go from purgatory into heaven. If you could somehow get a plenary indulgence and apply it to one of your loved ones who's already passed away, you put them immediately into heaven. One time Martin Luther actually obtained a plenary indulgence, and he remarked, oh, that my father was dead. He wasn't saying that he wanted his dad to die. What he was saying was, you know, if I apply it to my dad now, or if I apply it to myself, we're going to go on sinning and we're going to end up in purgatory. But if my dad were dead and I could apply this to him right now, he'd immediately go to heaven. Now, indulgences, in order to get one of these indulgences, as you probably guess, it's not free. You can't get an indulgence just by asking nicely. A number of ways you can get indulgence. indulgence. You can go on a pilgrimage, say, to Rome. You can go see certain sites. In the Middle Ages, you could go on a crusade. You know, sometimes we think about these people on these great crusades that go down and, you know, destroy all this stuff and try to recapture the Holy Land. And you kind of think, well, these people all had this desire to recapture the Holy Land. They, the people didn't even care about the Holy Land. What they wanted was a plenary indulgence. And the Pope was promising, the popes during the time of crusades oftentimes would promise plenary indulgence, indulgences for all those who would go on these uh, crusades. So you could go on a crusade, you can view holy relics in Luther's town in Wittenberg, for instance, once a year, uh, Frederick the Wise, the Duke of Wittenberg, would open up his museum, and at the peak of his collection, he had collected all these holy relics. At the peak of his collection, if you viewed them all, you would received a signed indulgence from the Pope, reducing your time in purgatory by 1.9 million years. And another way you could receive an indulgence is to make a contribution. You knew money was involved. Make a contribution. In Luther's day, it was a contribution to the St. Peter's Basilica. That's the big one in the Vatican. That's Michelangelo. That's the one that 
that Leo was building at the time of the Reformation. He was building this great basilica, and boy, it cost a lot of money. They're building this massive, gaudy church, and it cost a lot of money. I'll make it this later on. There was this long line of corrupt activity between the Pope and some others. Luther was actually clueless of all that had happened. But it all led to a guy in the county next to Luther on the street selling for the right price, plenary indulgences. All right, those of you who fall asleep, you can wake back up. This is where it gets interesting. Now, listen, through the years, the church has been very cautious about indulgences. And just in all fairness, even though that's a false belief, a false teaching, they've not been careless about indulgences. They were always very protective about indulgences and, and somewhat cautious, like the relics in Wittenberg. Only once a year could you go view them and get that indulgence Historically, it was kind of hard, like the Crusades. It was a hard thing to, in order to get a plenary indulgence. indulgence. So historically, the, the church had been pretty tight-fisted with indulgences, especially plenary indulgences. It wasn't easy to get one. But out of the blue, in 1517, a guy shows up not far from Luther's church and begins to, to, to peddle plenary indulgences. People just walk up to him and buy a plenary indulgence. They can just walk not far from... Luther's church, down to the next county, and just purchase the grace of God with money. The man's name that was selling the indulgences was Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was a slime ball. He was a priest, but he openly fornicated. He had multiple mistresses and many illegitimate children, but he was a great salesman, and the Pope needed money. So he was hired by the church to do just that, to go down from village to village, and he'd go into a town and ring his bell, and the people would gather all around him, and he would begin to say to them, no matter what you've done, you can buy this plenary indulgence, and you can spring your family out of hell, out of purgatory, that is, for the right price. No matter what you've done, even if, if you violated the Virgin Mary, you can get this plenary indulgence. Can you hear them? He would say. Can you hear your loved ones screaming in torment? How can you not free their soul from purgatory? What a small price to pay to get your loved ones into heaven. Of course, his most famous line, as soon as the coin and the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. No, that was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of Luther's ministry. This became a very pastoral thing for him. He, he cared for his congregation. He was watching people stream down and just walk back with these cheap plenary indulgences. And, and he was used to this process of not even getting a plenary, but once a year, one indulgence being availed to him, and he couldn't believe the abuse of power. And certainly he thought the, the, the Pope doesn't know about this. Sur, sur, surely the Pope doesn't understand what's, what's happening. And we need to open up some lines of debate. And so Luther, on All Saints' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day, or Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, 1517, he wrote 95 Theses of objection to the church's use of indulgences, particularly what was being done with Tetzel. He took the letter, he wrote it in Latin because it wasn't really meant for the people to read, it was written for the, the churchmen to read and to enter into a discussion among the church leaders, and he put it on the church bulletin board, which at that time would be the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. 
Now, ultimately, what was at stake was their understanding of God's grace. Is God's grace a a substance you earn, or, or worse, buy from the church prelates? Or is it, as Luther would soon more fully understand, is it a characteristic of God wherewith He gives of Himself freely to save sinners by no merit of their own? Someone, I think it was Karl Barth, said that Luther, grabbing onto the subject of indulgences and consequently sola gratia, was like a man stumbling in a dark bell tower, reaching out to grab something to stabilize himself. He unwittingly seized the bell rope and awoke an entire nation. All right, that's the story, at least part of our story as Protestants. I think we can see that grace is indeed not a thing, not a substance that we merit or purchase from men in fancy clothes. Grace is a characteristic of God wherewith He demonstrates His love and His greatness upon unworthy sinners. How does He do that? Well, our text today gives us four ways God's grace is demonstrated. Four words, perhaps you want to write these down, four words that describe the demonstration of God's grace. Number one, write down the word incarnation. Incarnation. Look there at verse 3. What did we contribute? Nothing. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What did Christ do? Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Stop right there. That, that word appeared, you can understand it in a couple of ways. One is sort of individualistically, when the grace of God appeared in your life in terms of the gospel and you understood Christ and you understood the truth. And we can all, if you're a Christian, you can look back to when the grace of God appeared to you, appeared in your life, and it became, began to make sense to you. But I think a better understanding of that word appeared is to be talking about the incarnation of Christ. When Christ, when God in Christ was incarnated, when He came to this earth, and then the following actions of, of Christ on our behalf on this earth, He living this perfect life, and then this ministry of the preaching of the gospel and of mercy and kindness and grace, and the climax of His ministry, His death on the cross and resurrection and even His ascension from this earth to His throne. All of that is included in the idea of His appearance here, His incarnation. The incarnation of God in Christ Jesus, His advent is entirely an act of His grace. We have nothing to do with it. We did not advise God from the foundation of the earth. We did not advise the Godhead on what would be a good course of, of action to redeem humanity. This was, this was a plan that God had covenanted within Himself as the triune God from before the foundation of time. Grace, by definition, is unmerited. Grace gives an exorbitant, beautiful gift and lavishes it on the undeserving. Some people say, well, God looks through the corridors of time and sees people responding and then acts in grace to them. First of all, there's not a verse to support that theory. Secondly, if God did look forward in time, what would He see? He'd see a foolish, disobedient people led astray by Satan to their own lust, passing their time in malice and strife. That's what He would see. He wouldn't find one deserving soul, soul, quite the opposite. 
No, why did Jesus come to earth? The Godhead had covenanted to himself to display his grace to humanity, not to display the good works of man and the great decision-making and to, to highlight the people who are more spiritual than others, who make the right choices, who are more sensitive. No, it is all an act to display God's grace. And so the plan was set. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would, would leave his glorious throne, eternal infinitely holy throne, he would come and subject himself to the filth of mankind. He would submit himself to the confines of human body. He would live among us and face the filth and sickness and sin of this world. He would then minister and, and bless people and preach the gospel. Then he would lay down his life as a sacrifice to atone for sin not his own sin. And there's no merit of humanity right here. This is pure grace, true grace, not partial grace, not somewhat merited grace. Grace, again, by definition, is unmerited. This is true grace. There's no person or church or people who can buy this or earn this. This is something that God did on His own accord. It is indeed a truly a true act of grace. There's no room in grace for merit. There's no room in grace for human recognition. It's either grace or it's not. It can't be both. So, first of all, Paul says God displays His grace by the appearance of His Son, Jesus Christ, by the incarnation. How else is God's grace put on display with no merit of man? Number two, regeneration. Regeneration. Now, that word's kind of a big word, but it's used here, so we must define it. Regeneration is the awakening of a dead soul. The Bible teaches, Colossians 2, Ephesians 2, that we are dead in sin, that our souls, we are born as dead in our spirits. We are the alive but dead. And only until God comes and awakens our spirit can we understand and know the truth of God. Well, this is this act that God bestows on us by the Holy Spirit is called regeneration. Verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's the separation. There's the clarity. This act of grace has nothing to do, the, the, the act of regeneration has nothing to do with man's actions, with man's efforts, with man's decision. By the way, mercy, the mercy that's discussed here is a product of that grace. Mercy, God withholding the justice that we deserve, is a product of God giving us His grace, giving us something we don't deserve. You'll see, we're justified in verse 7 by His grace. So, God withholding justice, an act of mercy, is a product of grace. Can you see this? The, the point of Paul that Paul is clearly making is that regeneration happens completely apart from human activity, apart from human works. It has nothing to do with human activity. It is God's grace alone. The Pelagians in the 4th century... The semi-Pelagians later on, even now, the Roman Catholic Church and then the Arminians, which is where most American Christianity is today, all of those in those camps teach 
that regeneration is the result of our decision-making, our own free will choices, that God responds to us. But clearly, this verse is saying the exact opposite. It's completely the opposite of that theory. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. This is not the product of human action. God regenerates us because, not because we've done something good or we've chosen Him or we've made the right decision. He does this based purely on His own grace. God's gracious change of our heart then causes faith to arise in our heart, causes obedience to arise in our heart, causes repentance to happen in our hearts. It is not the result of our actions, it is the action of God's grace alone, sola gratia, or it wouldn't be grace. It would be merited. Our statement of faith here at NBC, our confession of faith, states that faith and repentance are the result of God's gracious act of regeneration. They're duties, but they're also the result of God's act of regeneration. In regeneration, God changes our heart. He gives us eyes to see, and then He then gives us a desire to follow Him, to have faith in Him, to repent. This is straight from passages just like this right here in Titus 3. Think about John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, how can I be saved? In essence, how can I get in the kingdom? How can I benefit from God's grace? How can I experience God's grace and salvation? What does Jesus say? Well, you just got to do this, do this. Here's a ritual. Do those things, and then God will give you grace. Now, what does Jesus say? Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says that because of regeneration, you experience the grace of God before you even know it. God's grace alone displayed in His incarnation and regeneration of souls, regeneration of hearts, then we respond to that, what God has done in our hearts. This is all an act of God's grace and God's grace alone. What else shows us that it is God's grace alone that saves? Number three, justification. Verse 7 We've already covered justification by faith, so I won't spend a lot of time here. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace. And what is justification again? What is the meaning of that word justification? Being declared righteous before God in, in almost a legal or forensic way, being declared righteous before God. We are justified by His grace. being declared righteous by God because of God's grace. If we're justified by faith alone, and that faith comes to us as a gift of God, according to Ephesians 2 that we studied a couple of weeks ago, then this justification ultimately is because of God's grace. You go out, you buy a toy for your child, you take that toy to the cashier, you pay for it, and you give it to your child. Your child didn't earn it. Your child didn't deserve it. He didn't pay for it. He didn't do anything to merit that gift. It is wholly an act of grace on your part. In a much greater way, God acts on our behalf. He sent His Son to this earth to be incarnated, to live a life, to provide atonement of sin and victory over sin and death and resurrection. He regenerates your heart. He awakens you to the truth of the gospel. And upon so doing, this faith floods your soul, this desire to reach out in faith and believe in Jesus Christ 
And when you do, you are justified, and this is all a gift of God's grace. Well, there's one more significant and magnificent demonstration of God's grace. What is it? Fourth, glorification. Glorification. We are heirs, it says. We become people who are hopeful, looking forward to that blessed hope. Glorification defined is that time when God gives us our eternal bodies, when we're finally and ultimately free from these bodies and we live with Him perfectly for eternity. This is glorification. It's that final part of God's grace to us. We, he shows us His grace and before time. He shows us His grace in history when Christ comes. He shows us in grace in our own lives when He regenerates us and causes faith and then justifies us. And He shows us grace again upon glorification when He gives us our new eternal bodies. This is the hope to which we look. The whole thing, start to finish, is what He does in us and for us because of His grace. Again, this is not defy or deny the idea of faith or choice or a decision to trust in Christ, but it says that God's grace is the author of it all, that Jesus Himself is the author and finisher of our faith. A few years before this biblical idea of grace was making a lot of sense to Luther, God in His grace was working on Luther's heart. Luther was very troubled, and we talked about this, his efforts to, to make himself pure and follow all these rules, and he, could never, he realized he could never live up to the righteousness that he felt like was demanded of him. In the midst of all those troubles, he was provided an opportunity to go to Rome with a compatriot, a couple of priests or monks. I think he was still a monk then, not yet a priest, and, and he was provided an opportunity to, to travel to Rome I think maybe he was a priest, actually, and I think about it. And he was very excited about this trip to Rome because going to Rome would, would be thrilling to see all these wonderful things of Rome. I mean, this was the, this was the heart of the Christian faith in his mind. This was the center of, of everything. And he just felt like the closer he got to Rome, the, the closer, in essence, he would be getting to God. And so he, he was very excited about this trip to get to Rome. On top of that... Uh, just the trip to Rome in of itself would provide him an indulgence. And then there were on the way ways that he could uh, find, procure indulgences along the way. He would do certain things. If you did mass as a priest in certain chapels, you could, you could obtain indulgences as a priest. And so he was thrilled to make this trip. He was thrilled to do this. He, he, in fact, he and his friend chose to do it in the wintertime. And, of course, they had to cross the Alps. They're going from Germany down into Italy. So, they had to cross the Alps in order to get there, hundreds of miles by foot. And they felt like the harder it was, the more grace they could obtain and earn from God. And the more that would be in their lives, the more they would be right before God, and they could provide that righteousness not just for themselves but for others. So, he went on this trip. He was startled. To find out, the closer he got to Rome, the more troubled he was. Because the closer he got to Rome, the more he found out the church was corrupt. Indulgences were cheaper and cheaper and more and more abundant. Indulgences were provided for priests who did mass at certain chapels, as I've said. And Luther was shocked how priests would go in 
and just make a mockery of the mass in that chapel in order to get an indulgence. In fact, he heard some, overheard some priests joking about how they used certain words, foul words, in doing mass, and then they'd walk out with a, paper, a papal indulgence. He was so disappointed, and that disappointment grew more and more as he approached the Vatican. There at the Vatican, or near the Vatican, and remains there today, there are some stairs that the church uh, says that these are the stairs that Jesus climbed in order to stand before Pilate. They said these came on angel, angel's wings, were spirited from Jerusalem over to Rome. Later on, some more uh, straight-thinking apologists for Roman Catholics said, well, no, we think maybe Constantine, Constantine's mother did it. Probably both of them are not very likely. But these steps are there. This stairway is there. It's called the Sanctuscalia, the, the holy steps, the holy stairs. In Catholic doctrine, even today, it states that if you climb these stairs, saying the Ave Maria and the Lord's Prayer on each step, kneeling on each step, and then doing that seven times on each of the seventh steps, when you get to the top, you'll be granted a plenary indulgence. Of course, Luther, knowing this tradition, did this. But he got to the top, looking down the stairs, he said to himself, who knows if these things are true? Later, Luther said, I went to Rome with garlic and came back with onions. In other words, it just got worse for me. Nothing changed. I wasn't more enamored. I wasn't in a more understanding. I was more troubled, more frustrated, more disenchanted. He did all these things he was supposed to do to, to get this stuff, the grace of God. But his heart was more troubled when he left. Why? Because God, in His grace, was changing Luther's heart. God was opening him to this idea that His grace is a characteristic of Himself whereby He gives freely the work of regeneration, perhaps that had begun, and Luther was beginning to understand that man's righteousness is, in terms of salvation, exactly what the Bible says. It's its filthy rags. It is something that cannot justify him. It is worthless. He began to understand that it is all of God's grace. God's grace is not some thing that you work for or pay for. No, grace is that virtue of God that is on display in His actions toward humanity. The incarnation is a display of God's grace. Regeneration is a display of God's grace. Justification is not by works but by faith, but faith is given to us as an act of God's grace and that we can finally rest and find joy in the hope of eternal life. Because one day, not because of our performance, but because of God's grace, we'll be glorified and we'll enjoy His presence forever. What a wonderful story of the truth of God's grace. We sang it moments ago. I could hear your voices singing Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. And not one of you said, my chains are gone because oh, I paid a really big tithe last week. My chains are gone because, hey, this is my 10th Sunday in a row to attend. No, it's amazing grace. All of God's grace, isn't it? Let's praise Him for His grace. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the grace that You've given us. We thank You for what You've accomplished through Your Son for us. And we acknowledge we cannot understand how man's responsibility 
and Your sovereignty all work together, but we do know ultimately whatever choice we make, whatever decision we make, whatever faith we exert in Your Son, it is not because of us. It is because of Your grace upon us. And so we give You all the glory. Lord, we pray that Your grace will open the hearts of people even now, open their minds to the truth of the gospel, teach them the truth, teach them to finally surrender all their good works and their righteous deeds and quit trusting in that stuff. It's a pile of garbage. It's rubbish. It's a dung heap, as Paul would say. May they trust in Christ alone, have faith alone, and believe that it is only by God's, God, your grace alone that they would even have the ability to do this. Lord, we give you all the glory. We praise you for your amazing grace. Help us do this now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.